and welcome to tonight's episode of The Epic Pencil, a weekly evening of original fiction, conversations with writers, and more. I'm your host, Chris Watson. Thanks for joining me. People write for the purpose of connecting with others, creating an emotional response, or capturing a moment in time. Often, it's for an audience of one. The act of journaling, for example, is often a solitary one. And sometimes, that solitary effort finds its way to another unintended audience and makes an unintended and unexpected connection, generates an emotional response, and shares a moment captured in time. Tonight's piece, Message in a Bottle, tells the story of one such experience. Have you ever had one of those times when you saw something or heard of something and you were absolutely certain that you were going to love it? Like, there was absolutely no doubt in your mind? And then you try it and you can't understand why you thought you would love it? Or it was just fair to middling, okay, without being the rapturous experience you would hope for? We've all been there, of course. But if you're really lucky, and if you draw that inside straight, and the hope for that thing you love actually meets or exceeds your expectations... Well, then you've attained something special, something that can become a defining moment in your life, something you will never forget. I'm not talking about being sure that you're going to love that pizza you saw featured on some food porn show, or knowing you're going to love that awesome jacket you saw in the window. I'm talking about something big and amazing. I consider myself lucky to have drawn those particular winning lottery numbers twice. Once was knowing for so long that I was going to love being a dad, that I was supposed to be a dad. And once my daughter entered our lives, everything clicked, and it was right. Not always easy or smooth going, mind you, but from the moment it happened, I loved it. And I expect that many parents felt the same way. But that wasn't the first time that this happened to me. That belief that I was going to truly love something that I had never done before started when I was a child. My grandfather taught me to sail when I was a little boy on Cape Cod. I spent summers sailing at camp. My father gave me his copies of C.S. Forrester's Horatio Hornblower books when I was 12, and I read them over and over again, and I still do. I'd wanted to go to sea on a real sailing vessel ever since. As a student in Minnesota, I acted in the theater for fun. I took some psychology courses, but then I threw myself first into biology and then into history. St. Paul's an odd place to find a marine biologist, but my advisor was a really good one, and I loved his courses. And in the history department, my professors let me pursue maritime connections whenever I could. Everything changed when I saw a poster on the bulletin board outside one of my bio classrooms early in the fall of my sophomore year. It wasn't a big poster, but it showed a gorgeous sailing vessel and included a packet of tear-off postcards stuck to the bottom promoted something called the Sea Education Association and the Sea Semester Program. Now, this was before the Internet as we know it, so all I could do was fill out the card and request information. I received the information from SEA, and it was perfect. Six weeks of classes in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, in a program affiliated with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and the Marine Biological Labs. Then six to seven weeks at sea carrying out research, Celestial Navigation, and more aboard one of SEA's two schooners. Then came the first challenge. No one from my college had ever participated in this program. 
There was no arrangement in place for SEA credits to be accepted, and there was no process or program in place for my student aid to be applied to SEA's tuition. In short, there was no way to do the program, have it count towards graduation, or pay for it. So I applied anyway. I then spent the next two semesters arguing, cajoling, and pleading my case. I was accepted for the spring semester at SEA and given a small scholarship, but still couldn't attend because the administrators still hadn't accepted my proposal for why I needed to do this and why I needed their support. So I kept going. SEA agreed to delay my admittance for a semester, and I kept up my lobbying of my school administrators. I'm not sure I'd ever been so dogged in pursuit of a goal, but I knew in my bones that I needed to do this. In the end, perhaps because they felt sorry for me, or perhaps because I finally wore them down, the powers that be accepted my plan. I'd made my case and won the opportunity. I was going to see. In doing so, I missed a number of things. Everyone in the family gathered for my uncle's wedding in California the weekend I arrived at the SEA campus where I would be living for six weeks. While we were at sea, San Francisco suffered an earthquake that brought a halt to the World Series, and we didn't learn about it until well after the fact. And then, as we sailed south, the Berlin Wall fell, and we saw none of it. But it was worth it. And that was the second challenge. My time on shore was only moderately overwhelming. Classes were tough as we spent six intense weeks cramming on piloting, celestial navigation, diesel engineering, ship handling, marine biology, marine geology, maritime history, literature, art, law, and more. There was time spent in the research libraries until all hours of the night, planning the scientific experiment I would carry out and report on during our time at sea. We still found time to take the ferry to Martha's Vineyard, or play volleyball, or cook meals, or play practical jokes on each other. When we joined our ships, I was assigned to the research vessel westward. Well, that's when it became thrilling. We were the crew, the navigators, the scientists, the assistant engineers, the assistant steward. When not on deck watch, we were on lab watch, carrying out our shipmates' experiments if they were off watch, or we prepared our own. We set the sails, we scrubbed the decks, we cooked the meals, we hove to and with some volunteers up in the rigging on shark watch, we leapt over the side into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean to swim and soap up. We stood out in the rain, washing off the salt and wringing out our shirts, and when not on watch, we enjoyed the respite, but often just collapsed in our bunks, only to be awakened by the shout of, All hands on deck! or a man overboard drill. Most students were sick for the first day or two, despite the pills or scopolamine patches. I managed to avoid it, but the steward didn't do us any favor by planning a breakfast with fresh bacon as we crossed over the Gulf Stream for the first time. On our third day, I wrote in my journal, I woke this morning to discover no signs of land anywhere, just blue oceans stretching on, seemingly forever. Sitting astride the foremast spreaders, rolling in the gentle swell, it struck me how easy it was to believe that I had sailed over the edge of the world. For the first few days, we had birds with us in the rigging, but as we passed out of sight of land and headed farther east, the poor little things faded, and we would find them dead in the scuppers the next morning. We spent time racing eastward, skirting a major storm that was coming up the coast, and still having to sail through wind and rain and 12-foot seas. We rarely saw other ships, sometimes just lights in the distance but we were well off the main shipping lanes. Eventually, we crossed into the Sargasso Sea and then turned south for the Caribbean. 
We spent Halloween at sea, scrounging around the boat for anything we could turn into a costume to celebrate, and we dreamt of favorite foods and the staples of life on shore. I wrote in my journal, We hope to make port in Antigua sometime Thursday. I can't wait. Visions of ice cubes and ice cream dominate everyone's thoughts right now. Warm apple juice loses its refreshing capacity after 50 or 60 glasses. It's surprising how little things can become so important. There was a near riot today at lunch when a tiny jar of Skippy Super Chunk peanut butter appeared. It tasted wonderful. Do you know what the color green smells like? I do, because we could smell the island before we ever saw it. Of course, things changed a bit after making our first landfall in Antigua. Where our watches had been our immediate family for the first three or four weeks... When in harbor, little clicks appeared as groups went their separate way to get food or windsurf or scuba dive. But it was okay, because we always left port, and for a time, life went back to the way it was before. Then we headed south towards Venezuela, and then back to the north. And then we ended our journey, spending one of the final nights in a sheltered cove on St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where we had one last swim call, followed by a party, or swizzle, as it was known on board. It was bittersweet. Yes, we wanted to go home and see our families. My little brother would be born in just a few short weeks and I wanted to be there. But I also didn't want to leave. I felt like an entirely different person on the westward than I had been the last time I had been at college. However, different wasn't bad. I'd had a defining moment, setting a goal to do something I was certain I would love, pursuing it, attaining it, and then participating in a powerful, life-changing experience that was physically, mentally, and emotionally challenging before emerging as what I hope was a better, more mature, and more confident person on the other side. I stayed up late that night, penning a letter to no one in particular. I placed it in a champagne bottle I'd saved from the festivities, corked it up, and melted wax across the top. And then, on the outgoing tide, I hurled it as far out to sea as I could. Departing St. Thomas a day or two later, as the plane banked over the harbor, I could see the westward at the pier, preparing for the next round of students who would be joining the ship. I envied them the next six weeks of their lives, but also felt sorry for them. Their time would be spent island hopping, and while that was fun, they wouldn't know the wonder of being out at sea, away from the cruise ships and the bars and the scent of the islands. But the good-natured envy, along with the regret of leaving, were far more palpable. I returned home just in time for Thanksgiving, found work at a local store selling stereos and laser disc players to pass the time and raise some cash, and was there awake in our living room when my stepfather came home at four in the morning a few days after Christmas to tell me that my little brother had been born. In time, I returned to college for spring semester. It felt so different. I'd grown up more in a semester at SEA than in the preceding two years on campus. My view of the world and how I wanted to move through it had been altered. It happens. And unlike some people who don't recognize how they've changed over time, I was lucky in a way to know it, to feel it happening, to recognize that things wouldn't be the same. Compressed into those 13 weeks was an intense, exquisite, awe-inspiring series of events that I plunged into and reveled in. I wasn't necessarily a better person on the other side, but I was different 
and that I had a better idea of what I was capable of and what it felt like to achieve a long-cherished dream. Three years after my time on the westward, I received a message from my father. I had returned from St. Paul and was teaching on Cape Cod. A package had arrived for me from St. John's in the U.S. Virgin Islands. When I returned home and picked it up, I was stunned. My letter, the one I had thrown into the sea, had been found washed ashore by students on a school trip. Dear Mr. Watson, It was such a thrill for us to find your lovely letter washed up on the shore of St. John. The kids were so taken with the mystery of a real person writing a letter in a bottle. We have speculated long and hard about you and the details of your life. I have been so pleased to have the opportunity to convey to the children an unknown person's desire to communicate with someone, or no one, or the universe, or whatever. In these learning years, they are new to the idea of creating communication for the sheer pleasure of it. Thank you for setting such a fine example. The kids wanted to respond to your letter individually. I hope you can hear their enthusiasm in their words. And with Teacher Marty Holliday's letter came a copy of my own letter, which I never expected to see again, along with letters from the students. From them, I learned that my letter had been read to the entire school was framed in the school library. And then there were the questions. Had I been shipwrecked? Would I write back? Where was I sailing now? One evening at dusk, we sailed close to what we thought was a pod of sperm whales that stayed near us for a brief time as the light fell and the stars came out. When you're out that far, there are no lights and no clouds. The sheer volume of stars is breathtaking, and you feel as though you're sailing among them. I'm not a particularly religious man, but on that night, with the whales nearby and the stars overhead, I think that might be as close to God or the divine mystery or whatever you want to call it that I think I might ever get. I'd never felt anything so profound. I was at sea. I was on a sailing vessel. I was in this extraordinary place and time, and I loved it more than I ever could have imagined. If you're interested in learning more about Sea Education Association and its programs for high school and college students, please visit them at sea.edu. With two schooners operating in the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, The teachers on shore and the scientists and professional crews on board have brought extraordinary experiences like mine to thousands of students from around the globe. Plus, they're doing important research into the impact of plastics upon our oceans. If you'd like to see some photos from my cruise on the westward, I hope you'll join me at pretendingtowrite.com and check out the blog entry, also entitled Message in a Bottle. Thanks for joining me this week. We'll return to some original fiction and interviews in the coming weeks. In the meantime, please enjoy a great book or two, and remember to support your local, independent booksellers. The Epic Pencil is copyright 2020 by Christopher Watson.